This episode has been sponsored by MapHook. Hello, and welcome to The Gray Area, where I dispense advice and give interviews on relationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 24th episode in a weekly series called Odd Odd World. Last week's episode was a discussion with me about listener questions and ramblings. Please visit www.genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and tell me your story. Today is Wednesday, June 29th, and today I speak with Jameson Durrell, the lead level designer from Volition, and Daniel, a game designer student from Quantum College in Australia. Welcome, both of you, to the show. Thanks for having me. Sure. Hi. Before we get to meet you guys, let's do some news of the week. News of the week. Important gaming news, which I'm sure we all know. The Supreme Court ruled that video games are an act of expression, and so games have been granted full protection under the First Amendment, which creates basically a strong precedent that should dissuade future politicians from trying to push through any legislation that would be considered unconstitutional. And Patch 1.3 for Rift has come out. It has a new raid, new world events, but guild banks were held back for this patch, so just wait for them. They're coming soon, I'm sure. Call of Duty Black Ops Annihilation has some downloadable content packs, and they were released today. Super Street Fighter 4 Arcade Edition was released for PC, Xbox, and Wii. So guys, what's your news of the week? What games are you playing? Well, I've got a couple, actually. Uh, the, the first one is that WoW is going to level 20 for free for everybody. As long <laughs> as that's, that's pretty impressive. I wonder how long it is before they go free to play entirely. Uh, but for me specifically, I'm really happy that Angry Birds is on Windows Phone 7 now. So I can finally play it. <laughs> you couldn't play it before? You were left behind? That's right. <laughs> I was neglected. <laughs> I like the Angry Birds seasons. That's a favorite in our house. Ah. Uh, yes. So Daniel, what are you up to lately? So how you sound like you're dreading what I'm saying. I know what you're going to um, say, and I don't like that game, but go ahead and say it anyway. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, so... I'm currently playing Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, only so I can catch up for Revelations when it comes out later this year. Um, what else? I'm playing Rift, Terraria. I don't know whether you've heard about that one. It's on Steam. Um, really, really fun game. It's like, my, everyone says it, but it's Minecraft, but 2D, but not with RPG all thrown in. It's, all, it's great. It's crazy. Um, what else? Uh, WoW's got the new patch out. Um, yes. 4.2 is coming soon, isn't it? Next week? I No, it's actually... I think it's already out. It just came out? Um, yeah, I, oh. I downloaded it on Tuesday. And I've been playing Witcher 2, um, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Okay, very good. Very good. So let's move just a little bit to Red Faction Armageddon. For those who haven't played the game yet, can you tell us a little bit of the backstory for that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so... It's the sequel to Red Faction Guerrilla, and it's actually the fourth in the series. And what we've kind of done is taken, uh, it's, it's 50 years after the events of Guerrilla, and you play as Darius Mason, who's the grandson of Alec Mason from Guerrilla. And essentially what's happened is there's there's a, a, a cultist sect led by a guy named Adam Hale, who is basically trying to destroy the terraformer on the surface. And when that happens, everyone is forced to move underground. So civilization rebuilds everything underground in these various types of cave environments. And then later in the story, you'll find out that there's an alien force that's unleashed on Mars, and Darius is doing all that he can to stop that threat. Nice. I admit, I've done quite a bit of research trying to make sure that I got the family tree correct <laughs> and watched Red Faction Origins today as well, which was quite good. Oh, I <laughs> Yeah, I missed that on the Sci-Fi channel. Yeah, that, that's uh, something that was kind of interesting. We um, we worked with Sci-Fi to create Origins as kind of bridging the gap in between Gorilla and Armageddon. And it takes place, uh, the story revolves around Jake Mason, who's the son of Alec from Gorilla, and you know basically ties in the two together. 
I thought that was very clever because it's good to have that whole Jake Lyra, Adam Hale kind of threesome going on. So you understand a little bit maybe more why Adam Hale has such a hate for the Mason family. Right. Yes. And and the real hope is that, as with Battlestar Galactica, that it'll get picked up as a series and kind of tell the rest of the story leading into Armageddon. Oh, okay. But you'll stay within that gap? You won't go up to Armageddon? Yeah, I, I would just, you know, it, I guess it depends on how long the series would go, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, you See, could have a whole new that's one. That's something I'd time. watch. Yeah. That's something I'd, I'd definitely watch. I There's not enough stuff on TV to watch. <laughs> I agree. Since Battlestar's gone, it seems like there's really something, there's a, there's a, a hole there that could be filled. Oh, especially in Australia. In Australian TV, it's basically dance shows and cooking shows. And <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, I'm a great cook now, and I can dance. I can bust a couple of moves, but there's just there's nothing that really could, like. Um, I don't know whether you've seen Merlin. Um, yes, the series. Sort of. A, yeah, we're a little bit behind in that, but I think we're at season three. Um. It's just nothing to watch and nothing that catches my interest. So I spend twenty four seven on the computer. It's mm. it's nuts. It's crazy, but it's it's good to know that there's something like Red Faction Origins that's out and something I can watch. Yeah. Good. So Jameson, tell us what a lead level designer does. That sounds very impressive, but explain that to <laughs> me. Well, so the the level design group is what I like to call where the rubber meets the road. And and what I mean by that is the system designers provide each of the mechanics that, that you need. For instance, what, what's the player movement speed? Uh, what kind of weapons does he have? What's their fire rate? How do the aliens move? What do they do in certain situations? And the system designers kind of create all of the pieces while working together with us to figure out what, what kind of experiences do we want to create. And then the level designers kind of take all the pieces that, that, that we have at our disposal and create the exact experiences that, that, the player exper that the player has as they're playing through the game. So a level designer will go in and say, okay, once the player reaches this point, I want this to happen. When they turn this corner, I want them to get attacked by these aliens or whatever from, from these particular points. And what we're really trying to do is create individual experiences that are memorable for the player and tell the story that we're trying to throughout the way that they play through the game. Now, for me, what I did as the lead level designer was kind of, I had to look at the game a little more broadly and, you know, I was trying to make sure that we were achieving all the goals that we wanted across the game. Then I would assign individual uh, levels to to the other guys and work with them closely to make sure that the kind of things that they wanted to do fit in the scope we were trying to complete and make sure that everything was cohesive across the game and, and make sure I was giving them the kind of direction they needed to, to make the levels as good as possible. Okay. So you have a lot of different people coming to you and you're grabbing bits of what they're saying. And it sounds like you're creating kind of a map of, of how everything's going to flow. Yes. I'm understanding that. <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it. You know, is looking at the, the game as a whole, I've got to have my eyes on, on all the pieces, even things like, you know, cinematics are going to play here. We're introducing new enemies here, so we need to build something around that. And, you know, just making sure that the flow of the game is cohesive and, and hits the right beats and make sure that the player has the right types of ups and downs and lulls that they need to, to feel like they're progressing through, they're exciting, but they're also getting the kind of breaks they need mentally. When you imagine that, are you thinking of it like a first person as you're walking through the world, or are you kind of looking at it like a god mode where you're looking down and seeing it below you, kind of in 2D? Yeah, you kind of need to do a little bit of both. And so whenever I'm talking about the player experiences, I, I, I encourage the guys to talk about, you know, what would you feel? What, what's the emotion that you'd be looking for as a player to, to, to receive from this scenario? And you got to kind of think about, you know, what's going to be frustrating to the player, you know, and, and thinking wholly about what the experience will be when someone is actually having it there. But top down, you've got to think about as well, even from starting simply to a top down paper map of the area that you want to build. And then also just thinking about pacing and, and kind of timing things out and planning how much time do I want the player to spend here as opposed to the next area. And you got to got to think about it in both ways. I know I'm kind of getting into Daniel's area here, and he might want to ask some questions about this, but considering the way that this has such a weird sort of geomod engine kind of different atmosphere where you can blow basically anything up and have mass destruction, how do you account for, um, as you're planning this level, you know, what if this building over here blows up and it falls and you can't get through that way, or, or does it change? How does it change how you think about 
building that level when every single thing in it could explode and fall at any given place. It it changes everything. You know, I, I spent about a decade making levels professionally, and when I came to Volition, I had to throw a lot of those techniques out the window. You know, you think about even modern shooters where a door opens and people come running out, or someone is hiding behind a vehicle and step out into your view. I don't have that luxury ever, because the player could walk <laughs> in and destroy everything that is there before they even get close enough to, to have any of those experiences. Uh -huh. So. So what we had to do is we had to figure out, okay, what can we do to make experiences that work in our engine? So we would do things like, for instance, we created uh, what we call the monster closets in this game, which allowed us to have enemies spawn from indestructible rock. So that way we could fill the fights <laughs> and, and have a way to do that. And we also, the Wraith is an enemy that appears, uh, kind of like the Splicer from Bioshock. It just kind of appears in an area that allowed us to bring them in without the player feeling like, you know, they came from nowhere or there's only this one place enemies can come from. So we, we built each area. We had to think of it almost like a sandbox where we're like, you know what, here's the fight. Here's what we want the player to have to fight with and against, but we have no idea what they're going to do. So create it in a way that gives them lots of options and let them kind of play. They want to play the way they want to play. That makes a lot of sense because I could see you having people like um, in let's see, what is it, the Hall of Reflections with the Lich King, where you know if you stand at this particular spot, he can pass you and you don't have to worry about it. If people knew where that rock was, where everything was spawning, and they could blow it up, I'm sure they would do that first off. So that's, right. that's pretty good thinking. I like that. Um, before we go more about Red Faction, I was reading through the list of games that you worked on, and I saw Oddworld Stranger's Wrath. Right. And that made me so happy because I love the Oddworld uh, franchise so much. <laughs> and I'd played Apes Odyssey and The Munch and all of that, um, but I hadn't seen that one had come out since then. So now I have to go back and play that because I really like that. Yeah, um, that's it was kind of a bummer that, that we shut down when we did because Stranger's Wrath was... A, an absolute blast, not only to create because it's one of the most talented teams I've ever been around, but it was a, a pretty revolutionary game. We, we pushed it through the Xbox pretty hard when we were working on that. So, and, but just the, the, the world and the environments and how unique everything was, it was just a really fun place to be, and the types of games we made were a, a lot of fun. Well, I read that you had a really small team for that too, wasn't it? Like 27 people or something, which, yeah. which I, yeah. I understand that's kind of rare. Right. We had uh, six designers, eight artists, and about 10 programmers, and then our, our FMV guys, there was three of them. So yeah, that's that was pretty much our entire team. We had one producer who kind of was the scheduler. Everything else was very, uh, you know, we had loose plans for things, but it was very much, you know, working together as, as small groups to kind of iterate and, and create the kind of experiences that we wanted. I want to ask you more about teams, but I want to let Daniel have some questions here. Why don't you go ahead and, and ask him some of yours? All right. Um, so, uh, where, where will I start? Um, so, in Red Faction uh, Armageddon, you know, there's the introduction of the Nano Forge, um, and I, I've I've I played the game, and I, I thought it was a really good addition. It was it was something that the the previous games were lacking, but um, and I know you probably get this question all the time, but uh, do you feel that? It sort of it could have belonged in in Red Faction Guerrilla, where it was more open world and there was more use for it, I guess, um, as opposed to say where um, Armageddon is a, a lot more linear because of the whole cave system and and, and the whole migration underworld where it's, it's sort of expected. So, are are you asking why Guerrilla didn't have it? Yeah, uh, not so much why Gorilla didn't have it, but do you think it, it could have belonged in, in a more open-world sandbox um, sure. game? You know, it. well, so one thing to, to note is that the Nanoforge was technically in Gorilla. It's actually what was used at the end of the game. And so what we decided to do was kind of take that and, and tell the story that over that 50 years, more of its potential had been unlocked, which now gives Darius the kind of things that he has now. And then with Sam, the situational awareness mo monitor, she kind of is an added feature to that to kind of help the player have an in-world way to tell him kind of the things that he needs to do and have a dialogue since he's often on his own. Um, the other thing that the reason that we kind of did what we did was that some of those abilities were actually in Gorilla in multiplayer. For instance, repair was in multiplayer and we wanted to give the player the, the way to kind of augment and play the way that they wanted to play. And we felt that the Nano Forge was a way for us to do that and keep it in the fiction. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I 
don't get me wrong, I I actually love the addition of it. It's it's just really good, especially with the whole addition of the new weapons, like the you know the plasma beam and just the new ways to destroy the world. It, right. It allows me to you know I'll go back to a, a a building or something. It's just like I I kind of miss this building being here. Rebuild. <laughs> uh, I don't like it. Blow it up again. <laughs> You know, that, that so, was one of our other big big goals was to create weapons that really fit in destruction. Do things that no one else can do because no one has this kind of fully destructible world. So the magnet gun is a really good example of that for me. Oh, it's, I love that. That's, you know, people have destruction, but we never had given the ability to the player to choose where the destruction happens. And and just being able to move stuff around the world was absolutely amazing. I still have a blast with it. Well, I'll tell you, the the moment you gave that plasma gun to my friend when he got the game, he didn't right. leave the introduction stage for like 45 minutes. <laughs> he just kept rebuilding and blowing stuff up. I'm like, man, can we can we keep going with the game? <laughs> Please? <laughs> nice. So, yeah, destruction is fun. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I do like how you have kind of subtle nods to to different past characters, like um, that the the giant mech suit that Darius wears is called the Leo, which is the name of the character from uh, Origins, and how I'm kind of assuming that that S A M Sam is Semenya, who is like Alex's wife, and I like <laughs> like Asimov as the city, and Eos as the city. It's just I like the little things that you can kind of discover if you really get into the lore. Yep, and most you know most of those were fully intentional. You know, uh, some of them we we had already planned long before we decided to have the partnership with Sci-Fi. You know, as far as like Sam, mm-hmm. uh, but then we worked really closely with those guys as they were developing the 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 movie that you saw. And, you know, they, they got all of our assets. They got our entire uh, uh, world Bible. And, you know, they really built it to make it fit into the universe. So it's great. Nice. Let's go back to teams a little bit. Um, we were talking about the small team that you had had with Oddworld. What was the team like for Red Faction Armageddon size-wise? We topped out around 92, I believe. Okay. Um, so it was, you know, it was a pretty standard AAA-sized team. Uh you know that that comes with its frustrations, especially when you get too many people too early, uh, because you don't want people to be doing things that are not quite planned out yet. Or you know, you, there's still a lot of iteration, especially early in a project. When you've got builders on your team, it's really hard to to keep them doing things that are actually going to be utilized. Uh. So, but one of the things we did to kind of help um, keep the small team feel with our team was we did what we called the pod structure. So each of the missions had a level designer, an artist, and a programmer that was assigned to it, and they would sit together and work as a small group. And that allowed them to communicate more fully and make sure that they were kind of working together to create the best experience possible from all different perspectives. I'm kind of surprised that they don't bring you in first as the lead level designer and kind of let you begin and get about halfway through before they start worrying about artwork and cinematics and things like that and i don't know if oh, we do yeah do. absolutely we do that yeah I mean, we have to have so much of our planning done before we start any kind of iteration but you kind of have to have a little bit of a balance too like as we're trying to figure out you know what is the story what are our levels going to be what kind of key pieces do we feel like we're going to want anytime we can pick those things out that we're pretty confident in and let someone start prototyping it and and getting a feel for it then that's something that you know is a win for us you know, ideally, you have a really small team at the beginning that that creates the plan. But when you start, sometimes you get, sometimes you can't help the fact that you have to have more people earlier, and then you just kind of have to figure out ways to make sure that people are being productive as much as possible. Do you usually have a team already chosen to work for you? Kind of take me through the process at Volition when you're given a new game, I guess. Well, I can kind of tell you what I'm doing right now as far as that goes. Um, so I'm the design director on my next project. And right right now, there's just a handful of us who are kind of the the core leads figuring out, okay, what game is it that, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do exactly? How big does it need to be? What kind of scope are we looking? What kind of features do we want? And basically, at the very beginning stages of figuring out what is this game going to be? And then as we kind of move on, the rest of our, our leads will move on and we'll start start to get the plan kind of loosely fleshed out. But then once once we start getting the people that are going to be implementing things, then we talk closely with them and, and let them get their input in and let them put their own flair on it. We try to keep things more direct direction and project level based where we're basically saying, okay, we want a mission about, 
you know, someone stealing something and you're, you need to go to get it back. It needs to take place in this type of environment. It needs to be about this long. These are the enemies that you have, and maybe you'll introduce this one. And that's the kind of guidelines that we want to figure out and, and, and kind of plan broadly for what what we're trying to make the entire experience be without getting too specific until the people that are creating it can come in and put their own flair into it. I see. Would those projects be insane or Saints Row the Third? <laughs> Perhaps. Well, it wouldn't be Saints Row the Third because because that's well past that uh -huh. uh, coming out in November, uh, and it's not insane because my project is unannounced. Oh, okay, nice. He's got news he's not telling us. I know he's holding him. back. It's going to be at least a year before I could say anything about what it is. <laughs> now you're just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> so with you the team, first. yes, you heard there's a miscellaneous project happening somewhere. <laughs> yes. With 90 people on a team, do you find that you get to know all the people, or is it kind of just too large and you work with your immediate people, and as far as friendships, how does that work? Well, I, I think I was kind of in a unique position in that I had so many different people from various areas of the game always in communication with me because I'm trying to figure out, you know, what piece is this over here that we need, or I'm looking for this to go on the level, and I was kind of, I literally communicate with almost everybody on the team pretty consistently. Um, but it's easy to kind of only be around the people you're around and not, you know, meet other people on the team. Like uh, when I was at, when I was at EA working on the first Godfather game, we had 300 people on that team at one point. Hmm. And there were people that I never even heard of, much less met. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it, it can, it, you know, once a team gets really big, you know, it, it becomes more difficult because you've got so much stuff you're focusing on. You just need what you need. You just want to keep going and get it taken care of. Makes sense. With a game like Red Faction, there's already pretty much, by the time you get to the fourth one, a developed story and kind of imagery that people are expecting. This may be more of an artist question, but do you feel like you have to be true to the past visual history, or can you be creative and kind of deviate because now you're underground? That That's actually the main reason that we went underground. Um we one of the big complaints coming out of Gorilla was that the world all looked the same. And what do you do on a red planet, right? I mean, <laughs> right. You can do a lot with different rock formations and kind of the layout of areas and things like that. But still, there's that that base that is very much the same. And the the art director said, you know, look, let's if we go underground, we can still have some above ground stuff. But now we can have ice caves. We can have magma caves. We can have bioluminescent caves. We can do all these different things to give very unique and visual feels to the areas that we're looking at. And we can also figure out gameplay things that kind of help enhance those areas and make the player feel like they're actually in truly feel like they're in different parts of the world. It does definitely feel like that. It's not just your flat surface with buildings sporadically. I mean, you've got a lot of architecture involved in this as well as kind of rock formations and landforms and things. Um, what was your favorite game to work on of all the ones you've ever done? And, and tell me why. Oh man! I know. You What's know, your favorite color and why? <laughs> Up until I I worked on Armageddon, I would have always said that Stranger's Wrath was my favorite game, and the reason I say that is because it was an amazing team. It was it was my first you know accredited title, and we just had so much fun in such a unique world. But now that I've spent the last almost three years working on Armageddon, and I had so much to do with with what it became and, and kind of you know how it how it worked out so much of me is in it it's hard for me not to feel like that i'm connected to it you know so mm -hmm. I, I feel like it, it's if it hasn't surpassed it it's at least at the same level as as stranger's wrath was does it become your baby i mean if you spend that much time working on something and three years are invested in it i'm sure there's lots of little things that the regular uh playing audience will never really um you know, look at that mean a lot to you, little things here and there. And, and I mean, I have projects of my own that become very personal. How do you feel about that after such a long time? Yeah, well, there, there's a couple of things, you know, one, what one thing that people often don't realize is they'll see something that they that they play in the game, and they'll think, why on earth did they do that? And they have no idea the 30 decisions that kind of <laughs> plateaued and and knocked each other down and finally got to okay here's the time we have left here's the resources this may not be ideal but it's something we have to do 
And though, and every time I hear someone say, why did they do that? It just pains me. Cause I'm like, you don't understand, you know, <laughs> well, so, what's that? it's okay. You, I can, I can actually relate with you. Cause uh, like, uh, Genesis said, I'm actually a, a student in game design and we've gone through a lot of sort of that sort of stuff. We've built actual games and then we've presented it and then we've had, you know, students and lecturers gone, why have you done that? And we've sat there and, you know, gone through 15 different decisions to say, well, we should have it like this because we want this to fit in with this. And yeah, right. you you do have people out there that understand um, exactly <laughs> where, where you're coming from. Right. With an unlimited so amount alone. of resources and an unlimited amount of time, it might have been slightly different, but this is how it had to be because of If this. only we were Valve. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, you know, the, the other thing that you talked about, the personal flair, and, and there's a couple of things that actually I put into the game that actually I haven't even talked about yet. Um, there's in uh, about the fourth or fifth mission in the game, you come to an area, a town called Hazel Fork. And there's a big sign that you see as you walk up to it. That's actually the, the name of the road that I grew up on. Hmm. So, so for me, that was just a little something that I could throw in there as like a, you know, a little homage to that. And then also the first time you come out of the alien area, uh, you come into kind of a mining area. There's, there's a couple of water towers. And if you look at the graffiti, my name is there. My son's name is there. The lead environment artist and his kids' names are there written in graffiti. So, Oh, so we try cool. to find little ways to kind of, you know, even put our personal touch in the games. Daniel, I'm, I'm going to give you some time to ask since I've hogged your, your time here. Go ahead. That's all right. Okay, so just sort of going back to the whole coming underground, um, I wanted to ask where you got the inspiration for the levels. Um, for the, the layout of them? Yeah, for, like that... the layout, how everything sort of fits together. Well, you know, originally we kind of, we had the basic ideas for the levels and sometimes we would go into them with, with very specific, um, ideas. For instance, it, in the first ice level, or actually, I guess it's, it, the second ice level, um, we had built these construction pieces called Warrens and what those were was fully destructible walls that made it feel like you were inside of, of a tight building that, that had many layers. So it's almost like you're inside of an apartment building or a, an office complex that had these many floors that you could blow through. And we wanted to make sure that we introduced that and that the player, and we built a level around creating those tight feeling uh, instances of that stuff. So those are the kind of directives that we would go in with the guys and, and, and let them do that kind of stuff. Now, the, the demo of our game was from what we called Mission 6, which is when you're escaping the sewers after uh, you're escaping through the sewers to get back to the to the surface. And I actually went into that one and, and did the initial layout myself because I wanted to create something that had a very vertical feel to it. So I started with a mixture of natural terrain and the worn pieces, and I created this level that kind of kept spiraling on top of itself. So each time that you kind of came over this open canyon, you could look down and see the, the layer or two or three that you had kind of come across before. So those are the kind of things that we talked to the guys about. But from there, it's really about their their own personal style and how they like to build levels. You know, they have restrictions on how they can build them, you know, with restrictions with visual memory requirements, things like that. But it's really about here's your goals. And then I work closely with them to say, you know, here's how this is progressing. Maybe this area needs to come down in size a bit and make sure that they're achieving the things that we're looking for. Okay. So is there a certain time frame that you give to your level designers to, to sort of pump out a level? Um... Yeah, what we did on Armageddon was we kind of set everything in phases. And the first thing they had was, you know, we went through, before we even started any kind of production, we did the, the paper maps and kind of the prototyping and decided, you know, what, here's how long the mission needs to be. Here's the, the beats it needs to hit. Now let's kind of tinker with it and see kind of what we get. And then they had what we call the white boxing phase where it was like a week or so to go in and just rough it out, purely visual, creating the geometry. And you could run through and kind of talk through, hey, here's where I'm going to fight this. And we actually created these little cards of the enemies that they could just drop in quickly and say, here's a fight consisting of these amount of guys. It should take a couple of minutes. And and just you could, so anyone could run through in, in less than a week's worth of work and get a feel of like, here's the overall size of the space. Um, can the VFX guys and artists uh, and lighters talk to it and say, yeah, we can fit the costs in here, or maybe we need to, to adjust with them before any real work's done to, to make sure that we're staying in those budgets. 
And then after that happens, they go in and put down a first gameplay pass where they put in the things like the, the splines to move on, first enemy passes, put in things like uh, objectives and checkpoints, and just roughly let the player to be able to play through. Once we feel like there's some good combat there, then we give it to the art guys for their first pass of making it look nice. And so then, you know, they spend their their week or two, whatever it is they need, depending on the size, to, to make something that looks great based on what they'd already talked about. So there's no surprise to them. They've been involved in this the whole time. And then when it comes back to the designer, now he has to do kind of a cleanup pass to make sure that, you know, nothing was broken as far as the scripting and that kind of stuff. And then now we've kind of got a decent looking level with a decent amount of gameplay. And then that's the first, for some people, the first real glimpse into, oh, here's what we're looking at doing. And then it kind of goes back and forth from there to polish things up and make sure that things are working. At any point, if you find that something didn't quite turn out the way we thought, or we don't have, maybe we got a new enemy that we didn't have yet, and it doesn't quite fit the way we thought. Maybe we need to make some adjustments, but it's pretty iterative from that point. Okay, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and that actually ties into a lot of what I'm learning about currently um, in, in in regards to the phasing and stuff. Like, I'm halfway through my last year of my, my degree, and, you know, at, at the the way that I, I guess I can phrase it is that it's, it's a lot different being told this sort of thing and actually getting it from someone who's who's done this uh, a lot of this sort of stuff um um you know getting it straight from the horse uh, the mouth of the horse i suppose is the best way to put it um <laughs> one of my lecturers was um the uh tester the the lead tester at team bondi for la noir okay and you know he he's the one that's teaching us all about these sort of design elements but when it sort of comes from someone who's really involved in that, I think it's you. You get more of a, an in-depth feel for, for for what really goes on, like the the proper phases and and, and whatnot. Um, another question for you. Um, I've been reading your blog ever since Genesee put me onto it, and you mention episodic content, um, and whether it's the future. Um, do you want to go into bit of that maybe describe what it is for those who don't know what that is and yeah well your views right sure um you know episodic content on its own is just the idea that instead of creating a fully complete game that comes out in in a on a disc in a retail store that instead that that could be broken up into segments and that the player could buy for instance the first act spend much less play that first act and then when the next one comes out they can purchase that and continue to play this is a model that this is a model that um, Telltale Games uses for all of their games like Sam and Max and and the uh, Monkey Allen games that they've started redoing. And to me, it's a really interesting thing from a couple of perspectives. Because one, I think that you could get more people to try your game at a cheaper price point. And, even the, and you've made much less content at first. So let's say, let's say we took Armageddon and we only built the first three missions. And that that cost of development comes down drastically. Of course, there's some underlying stuff that's going to be there the whole way. But let's just say we could evenly split it up and we say, OK, we're bringing in the first third of this and we're going to charge a third of it. So how many people would jump in at a $20 price point and try something out that they may not have been willing to throw $60 at? So for us, I think that the, the cost of entry is much better. We could potentially get a lot more. Maybe maybe not even half of them decide that they want to move forward because it's not the game for them. But I think that increase in people is beneficial right at the beginning. So, But the other thing that does for us is it allows us to work in development in smaller chunks. So we do that first part, and then as that's going through submission processes and getting bug tested, we're now working on the next piece of content and preparing that for release shortly after the first one is done. So that allows us to kind of break up our, our development cycle a bit and get revenue much quicker, which allows us to kind of keep things going and we can continue to... To, to move in that direction. DLC kind of does that, right, by adding that extra bonus at the end, but there's still, it's a full game beforehand. Yeah, I was going to say that makes a lot of sense because it seems like right now with DLCs, it's almost like a quarter of the game with some of them where you're paying for that content after, and right. this way you would get a chance to try it. Do you think, however, I mean, has there been times where you're creating a game and you get to the end and then you realize, oh, you know what, it'd be nice if this element was earlier in the game or we had something changed in the story here because of this and you go back. Does it need to be a complete product to make sure that it's cohesive or do you feel like you could break it up like that? I, I think the plan needs to be done before you even begin. Okay. You know, at least at least 
a, a plan. So, for instance, if, you know, if we were going to build Armageddon in three chunks, we would want the whole plan for Armageddon before we begin. Because it would be about us figuring out, you know, what do we want to, what, what do we want that whole experience to be? Because we want the player at the end of that first episode to be like, I've got to have the next one. It has to feel like they're being left on a cliffhanger and that they're anxiously waiting the next one, which is currently in development. So it has to be a full plan in order for it to feel like a full game. Um, I think one of the problems you you come across with episodic content though is that a lot of uh, a lot of people that do do it, um, not excluding you know Sam and Max, but there isn't that coherency. Um, like they break it up and the 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 episode sort of ends abruptly and there's no sort of like you said cliffhanger. Um, and that that sometimes can get a little bit jarring. Um, I think Tomb Raider. Uh, they had a little bit of that in there as well. They they've done a couple of episodic um, releases with their games. Um, it was an article I was reading some time ago, and it it, it was just a little bit jarring. Um, so what what do you what would you say is probably the best way to get around that? I mean, you said have a, an entire plan, but would you have that plan that would incorporate the you know the episodic content and say, well, this is how we'll end this game and go into the next. Yeah, you have to. And, and that's where I talked about the cliffhanger, because I feel like you almost have to have each of the episodes feel like it's an entire television episode. And if you think about something like, you know, 24 or, or one of those things, they had the entire episode of a season of 24 planned. Each episode kind of told its own story, felt like it had a little bit of self-contained, you know, uh, it, it felt self-contained on its own. But then at the end of it, you're ready and you you want that next one. That has to be part of the plan. You have to make the player feel like they want more, for or else they're not going to want to continue. Very true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh, another question: Player award. Um. Now, in Red Faction Armageddon, do you think, um, in you know destroying buildings, sort of gave of was was rewarding to the player? Do you reckon? I hope so. I mean, you know, <laughs> because of the non-salvage, you mean? Yeah, you know, that's that's part of what we wanted to do. Is one, I feel like it's just fun to do, but but it's also very important to make sure that the player feels rewarded for doing the things that you want them to do. And with our game being about destruction, we want we felt like we wanted them to. to yes, it's fun. Yes, it's cool. But I'm also feeling like I'm advancing by doing so. Um, I guess it's a really fine balance that you need to strike. Um. With reward, I mean, determining what gives what reward or what punishes the player for doing something wrong um, requires some sort of finesse. Um, do you spend a lot of time balancing those sorts of things and determining what what rewards the player should receive? Yeah, there, there's a lot of balance to that. You know, we you have to kind of you go in with your initial perceptions of like what what would the player like to do. How often would we be divvying things up for them to get as a reward? And we even had like, okay, here's our plan for all the upgrades that the player can have. Now, how do we want to divvy them up? Not only based on how often the player should get rewarded, but also from a balancing standpoint and difficulty. So you've got all these perspectives you have to look at it from and, and make sure that you know the player is having fun, getting rewarded as often as they need, but also that the challenge remains and that they feel like they're not advancing too quickly for the game. We're talking about rewards. Something that kind of ties in with that, I feel like, is consequences as well. And I was reading your, your article on your blog on emotions that are triggered by events and games and things. And, and I was reading how you were talking about Eris in Final Fantasy, her dying. being, <laughs> And I totally agree because I've said that on podcasts before where it just bro it broke my heart when Eris died and I could not finish the game. Uh, <laughs> and Daniel and I are currently playing Fable 3. Uh, we just started an evil character because we completed the good cycle. And there is that quest to, to kill the artist and, and allow the person to get a higher value on his paintings. And you were right. talking about how you'd, you'd killed him and then your, your little child in game came and was saying to you, Daddy, why did you kill that child? Not only did she say it, but she kept saying it every <laughs> time I saw her. And I have a seven-year-old son, so that even hit me even harder. Oh, can you think of any other games where a major decision has consequences that kind of come back to haunt you or really hit hope home emotionally? Oh man, you know, I nothing else particularly comes to mind. 
But the the reason that that I gave those two examples in the blog is because one was something that was completely out of my hands, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was something that I felt they they had woven a story that attached me to a character. And ultimately, I'm sitting there thinking, these two are going to fall in love. I'm going to have this character forever. Awesome. And that gets destroyed. And that not only did that happen that way, but I'd never seen that in a video game at all at that point. So that was pretty devastating, And it, but, but it was something out of my control. And that's why I brought up the example of Fable 3 is because this was a choice that I made. Admitted, I didn't, I wasn't fully paying attention to the choice when I made it, but I made the choice. And the consequences, I, for me especially, were very impactful because I I did something that was contrary to how my character acted generally. And I always play good. I, I never can play bad for some reason. And and then they threw in the extra little zinger of the child constantly reminding me. <laughs> it had been hours later. And I'm like, would you stop talking about this? Yeah, that's when you unlock your well, safety mode on your weapon. See, Genesis just inherently evil. Um, She 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 shot someone in Aurora for making a comment about the women in Fable Three. We were in a co-op, and she was following me around, harassing me in your world. And I figured it wasn't my world, so I uh, made sure that she didn't harass me any longer. Yeah, so she shot her and killed her. And (laughs) look, I'd I'd finished the game at this point, and. You know, everyone in the in the city was my best friend. And she <laughs> yeah, you were killed. running around and they were throwing golden little gems up in the air that were giving you health. It was very sad. I couldn't take it. Yeah, <laughs> she was she was just jealous. I was um, jealous. I was jealous. But but yeah, like I I agree with the whole sort of emotional thing. I, even Genesee knows that when I finish Fable Three and then spoiler alert, yeah, turn it off here when Walter dies. Yeah, I was really upset. Mm. Like. I was really, really upset. I was really attached to Walter because Walter reminds me of my own father. Uh-huh. Oh, my wow. my uh-huh. father my father's a big man with a, a beard and you know, graying hair and I was just like, That could be my dad. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, the other so, thing at the end of Fable Three that got me was I was doing my best to make all the good choices, right? I let people drink as much as they want, you know, everything. And my intention was to get right to the end and then allow my money to build up from the houses that I own, do quests, and then have enough money to to fully win the right way. Mm-hmm. But there was no consistency in the amount of time that passed each time that I advanced. So I didn't know that when I advanced to the next day, suddenly it was the end. And oh, I'm like, oh, no. you've got to be kidding me. I was so far in the hole money-wise. There's nothing in, in the in the uh, safe at the time. So I was just like, Say, no. Yeah, I, I felt like I cheated a little bit. I yeah, did like... cheat. I did cheat because like you said, I mean, I had all my rents raised to maximum and then the townspeople started to hate me and that <laughs> got very disturbing. And so at the end, I, I did use a trainer and get myself money and I gave you money, Daniel. So you didn't cheat. I did. Oh, you gave me about a hundred, but then I then used that money to buy more houses. And I did the exact same thing. I raised the rents to, extremely high or you know pay me pay me everything that you get plus your firstborn child thanks um (laughs) and then you know i i raised money and what i found is because if you didn't do the main quest and advance forward and have that weird you know allotment of time where you go from 365 to 265 or whatever um days you could just sit there on 365 days until you came up with all the money right uh-huh. And then you just progress through the quest, and then you make what you do is you just make you make enough money to allow for all your um good choices to deposit. So at the end of the at the end of the thing, I still had about nine million in the in the bank, <laughs> and I was just like, yep, yep, yep. And then I gave all my money to gave all my money to the to the castle treasury, so I could get the the little reward chest at the bottom of the treasury, mm-hmm. and. And that's why everyone loved me, and you were jealous. I was completely jealous. <laughs> Moving on. That was my goal. Right. <laughs> I just did it in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's... So did everyone die? What happened? No, yeah, everyone was, lived. In mine, it was bad. Oh. It was really bad. Basically, the little heads popped. And you no. were just like, no, <laughs> no, why are you doing this? Stop, stop. <laughs> yeah. Oh. 
<laughs> what would you tell an aspiring game designer like Daniel here, uh, who's just graduating and he wants to know how to begin and where to begin? I know you visited Full Sail, which is your school, is that right, when you went to right. college? Yeah. And I'm sure you just shared this very question with a bunch of other students, but maybe you could pass on that knowledge to little Padawan Daniel. <laughs> well, you know, the, the first thing that I, I suggest is that someone who wants to be an actual game designer to decide if there's a portion of design that, that they excel in. And there's, there's generally in AAA game development, there's, there's three areas of design. There's writing, there's, uh, system designers and there's level designers. And people generally will fit most of their talent into one of those areas. And not that you can't even be great at some of the others and but some people you know generally tend to to fill one of those roles and especially between system and, and level designers i am absolutely a level designer and that's just the way that i think like i like to play with legos instead of doing puzzles you know that that's kind of the the distinction that i like to make between the two and so it once you kind of figure out where you your system where you fit then to me i think what you need to do is start developing your skill set and the first thing that anyone needs to do is start working with a level design tool or, you know, basically a game development tool like UDK or Unity, something like that, where you basically get in, you, you can learn. There's books out there to teach you that stuff pretty easily, but you can learn the how to fully make a game, actually. And you kind of get a sense of what that process is like. And then anything you learn in one of those editors will translate over into whatever editor a company uses. Okay. Yeah. Um. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I I was just thinking about. I've actually been making notes. To be honest with you, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a little bit in awe that I'm still here at the moment. But um. Yeah. Like no, the, the first thing that I recommend is to read my blog. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about that too. We'll link it. We'll link it. Awesome. Link it. <laughs> Although um, I have to say I can't pronounce your Twitter name, so we'll we'll get to that at the end as well. Sounds good. Okay, I do have a question in regards to playing games. As a right. game designer, do you find it a little bit hard to remove yourself from from that sort of mindset and stop picking at the flaws? This, this is something that I think anyone who learns to make games is going to struggle with. And kind of what happened for me was going through Full Sail, it was you know 15 months for me of constantly making games and trying and, and trying to learn how to make them. And for about four years after that, I could not enjoy playing games. Hmm. And it was it. And there's a lot of games in that time period that I still have not played just because I, I couldn't do it. I did not enjoy the experience at all. And so what what it kind of got to for me was I, I I learned I had to teach myself to turn off my designer's eye. And 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 it it was a long process of figuring out forget about what they're doing and just just focus on what the experience you're having is. The only game during that time that I could really enjoy was Dark Age of Camelot, and I played it all the time. So, and me and my wife played together because there's, I don't know what it was about that type of environment. If WoW had been there at the time, it would have been that, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, it was just, that was the kind of game I could get into and, and not, not pick it apart. Um, so then I had to teach myself to not look at things critically. And the next few years was spent learning to turn it on when I needed it. So so for me, it was playing a game, and when I see something that was interesting, then I would sit and evaluate it and kind of think, you know, okay, what about that was, was good? What was bad? What How did they kind of accomplish that? And it's almost like the way that I kind of describe it now is I kind of leave that, that designer's eye on just, just behind me. So it's kind of glancing, but it's not, you know, always in, you know, taking full concentration away. It takes a lot of practice and... I mean, I'm sure it's different for some, but that's kind of the experience that I had for a long time. Yeah, uh, I have to admit, I've I've been doing that a lot lately, where I've just been like, for example, Terraria. I don't know whether you've heard of it, but mm -hmm. um, it's yeah, it's just 2D uh, Minecraft in a sort of platformer style, I guess. So you know, you run along, you build build buildings. Like at the moment, me and a friend have got this massive engineering project where we've built um flowing water and there's no source blocks or anything like that in minecraft but we've got flowing water through a castle and that's with what we did is we actually exploited a, we managed to exploit a bug just 
purely because we, we looked at the game and we were like, if we scoop up the water as it's falling, we could duplicate water. And <laughs> that's something... And we, we managed to fill a massive tank. This is this is something that would have rivaled a, a small lake. And, you know, it's, it's, I, 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is that I know what you mean. It's, it's really hard to turn off and, and sort of just enjoy the game. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it's going to take practice. It's a, it, it can take a long time. You know, I, um, one of the things that's kind of interesting for me now is, uh, I, I can play games with my son and that, that's what, that's what our spare time together is now. And for a long time, it was, you know, he was three, four years old, we would play and it was a whole lot of here, son, let me take your controller. Let me get you past this part you're struggling with. Now go ahead. But now, you know, he's seven. And for the last few years, he's been my, my gaming partner. But the thing that, that's been really interesting to me is how, so, th- so for instance, we're playing a, one of the Lego games. I think it was the Pirates one. And we're great sitting game. there. What's that? It's a great game. Oh, yeah. We're really enjoying it. And I, I'm completely stuck. I have no idea what to do. And my son walks over, takes my controller, and goes, here, Dad. And he went right to the spot that needed to be fixed and did it. But for me, I'm like, okay. That's where I stop and I say, okay, what about this was clear to him and wasn't clear to me? Ah. So so I ask him, I say, you know, what, what is it that, and I don't remember specifically what it was in this case, but in another case, I asked him, I said, so how did you know where to go? And he said, well, the light's over there. And I'm like, okay, great. That that makes total sense. And, and those are the kind of things that, that I just, whenever he sees things, you know, I can kind of evaluate it and, and, and kind of think about it from that angle. Another thing I've seen that's interesting, though, is he only has preconceived notions on current generation games. So things that I learned when I was a kid are not the same kind of patterns that are be, being done now. He's picking up on things that are normal to him that I still struggle with at times because it's something I'm learning about the way we make games today. So there's a whole lot of me evaluating and thinking, okay, how can I dilute the things that I'm doing at work down into almost a child's perspective and make sure that everyone gets on the same page and that we're seeing the same things no matter you know what angle we're looking at it from. That's really good because I guess you have to think about the future where you know your target audience might be you know 25 to 35 or whatever now, but you know as we all age and you keep making games, you're going to have to think about you know your son is going to grow up to be that 20 year old. You want to make games that relate to his the things he's seen as a child and the things that are natural to him and keep current with that sort of thing. So very yeah. cool. Let's get ready for questions. Let's move on to a listener question. Uh, I'm going to read a question from a listener and then give my perspective. And if you guys could chime in after that and tell me what you think, that would be good. Cool. Uh, Abba asks, I own a Wii along with Wii Fit, but the Kinect and its games got me interested. Dance Central, Your Shape, Fitness Evolved, and EA Sports Active seem like good workout games. With the Wii, there's the Wii Balance Board, Remote, and Nunchuck. For Kinect, your body is the controller. In Wii Fit, you can actually cheat and get away with the exercise, but Connect it tracks your movements so you actually do it. Connect seems like the better option for exercise. What do you think is a better way to get in shape with gaming, the Connect or the Wii, and why? I have to say I don't have a Connect, so I can't properly answer that question. I do want one, though, and, and it does seem to me when I look at it that the Wii is kind of like more of an arm exercise and you you kind of are on your honor card to do the rest of the bits as you should it seems like the connect actually seeing you would be probably a better option because it's going to be taking into account your entire body but perhaps you could help answer this jameson it it's actually i love this question and i um it's funny because i'm doing a series on my blog about this very thing <laughs> where i'm trying to lose weight from playing games and i so i started the first thing and I was doing uh, uh, Biggest Loser on the Wii originally. And for me, it was, re- it was really good because, you know, it, it did a good job of, you know, you, when you were doing certain exercises, it would maybe have you put the controller in your pocket. Um, or any, So it would basically be able to detect the movement in those areas. But still, you could completely cheat. And uh, it wasn't all that accurate. It's just a coach. It tells you what to do, like, you know, push-ups or whatever. Yes. What is that? Okay. 
and it would monitor the movement of the controller, but it couldn't be very precise because of, you know, it's, it's this one little wand. Um, now when the connect came out, uh, I'm, I'm a big connect fan and I, you know, I got it right away. I got your shape and the fir and it shows down in the corner what it is reading of you. And so you see a little digital version of yourself as you're playing mm. and it, it, really finely sees what you're doing and it changes the color of your image based on how accurately you are doing the the exercise <laughs> and on top of that the amount of points that you get decreases as you're not fully doing the exercise oh okay so yeah so i mean it it is pretty incredible the amount of detail that it's that it's able to get off of someone and so for me you know that that was really great um I actually ended up moving to The Biggest Loser when it came out, and it is leaps and bounds above what they were able to do on the Wii for the same types of reasons. But for me, what was nice about that over your shape is that there was the coaching. It was talking to you. It was encouraging you. That stuff wasn't happening for me in your shape. It was an exercise routine, but it didn't give the encouragement that I felt that I needed to kind of keep moving with it. And okay. the other benefit of the Connect games in general, things like, you know, Dance Central, those are awesome workouts, even if you don't want a workout. Yes, if you don't notice it, it's a good workout. Yeah, absolutely. And my, that's what my wife is doing. Is she's playing Dance Central because that's how she has fun and also gets some exercise. For me, I kind of need that coach to yell at me to actually get myself to move. Do you begin to resent the Connect after a while? You know, just become the 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 evil person that's forcing you to do stuff or is it more like just sitting down and watching a video like you used to to work out? You know, it's, it's very much, it's always encouragement. Um, it, it, it never, you know, it, it's, it always takes a positive spin and you know, it makes you feel like you want to do better. It never feels degrading or, or anything like that. So they did a good job, especially with, uh, with biggest loser. Because what you need to do now is build a, a game like Boot Camp, which does give you degrading comments. It makes you sob like a little girl. <laughs> Get on the floor, like, maggot. That's right. I, I can't do this anymore, man. I can't do this. <laughs> Turns off Connect, goes outside. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I'd put my two cents in, if mm -hmm. I might. Um, I, I think uh, I've had sort of limited exposure to the Connect, and we've got, like, I'm pretty sure everyone else does, has a, a Wii balance board. Um, but I, I think I have to agree with uh, Jamison. The, the Connect just seems like it's more suited to uh, an exercise routine, whereas a lot of time I'm just waving my arms around like an idiot with the Wii. I'm afraid <laughs> that I'm going to knock knock the lamp over or something. <laughs> I love um, the picture where you oh, someone throws it and it hits it. It warns you to put it around your wrist. No one ever does that. <laughs> I'm too cool for that, man. Yeah. Um, that will put my put my hand through a window. So I mean, from my opinion, go connect because we the health hazard. Ah, oh, okay. Let's yeah. move on to an article. Um, I think this is particularly appropriate considering the First Amendment uh, discussion we had earlier. I will ask you at the end what your opinion is. This is called The Gamer, Not the Game Itself, Responsible for Violence by Noah Cohen. He says, when one enters the virtual world, one can feel an odd sense of freedom and uncertainty. Video games today have grown to newer heights, and the virtual world has become more intense as a result. Often criticized for the harmful effects on their users, violent and sexual video games have become increasingly popular over the past few years. According to FamilyMedia.org, game environments are often based on plots of violence, aggression, and gender bias. Many games, such as Grand Theft Theft Auto and Halo, we've heard, fall into that category. And it continues on that, that vein, basically. Um, let's see. And he says, from his experience in the virtual world of Halo, a violent video game, he feels there's no greater sense of aggression or anger in himself because of that. He says, I believe that this controversy can be lessened if, if people become more accountable for their actions. It's simply inexcusable in my mind that any sort of violent act can solely be based on the effects of a video game. People need to understand the possible effects of video games and act accordingly. Jack Thompson and others can continue their fight, but in the end, it's the gamers who control their own destiny. My thoughts about that are pretty similar to the writers, basically it's a responsibility question where often people have trouble kind of taking responsibility for their own actions. And if you 
look at the rating system, it's pretty clear on games and what's appropriate for different ages of children. And if you let your child play that game, then that's sort of your choice as a parent, and you can't turn around and point the finger and say that your child's acting a different way because of that video game. I feel like just because the word game is in something doesn't mean it's geared for a child. Just like something that's animated doesn't necessarily mean it's suitable for kids anymore. So I think parents need to be more involved in the purchases and you know, just like video game or just like uh, movies on HBO late night, you know, I don't object to them. I just think that if you let your ch- child sit up and watch HBO late night, you can't complain about the words they say later. So what's your take on that as you have a small si- child as well? You know, I the, the analogy I like to make is alcohol, because imagine there's a six pack of beer and everyone has that available to them. Some people are going to drink different different amounts of that alcohol. And let's say everyone drank even the same amount. Their reactions to that are going to be different. Some people, when they get drunk, get angry. Some people get happy. Some people get huggy. You know, it's. It, I think there's a whole lot of variance in how people react to things and what they allow themselves to do. And, you know, even so, some people are going to drink that whole six pack and then ask for more. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the product that's always the problem. It, I think a lot of it has to do with how you react to that product. This is something that comes up a lot at college. Um, as you might or might not know, Australia doesn't have an R18 rating yet. So a lot of the games that we get into Australia uh, are sort of had to have to be sort of dumped down, I guess, or, you know, um, the content has to be changed. So it's suitable for an MA15, which I think is our highest. Um, but, you know, even that is is still quite violent. But... The, the, the what people need to distinguish is that there's you've got your game world and then you've got your real world mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily translate across from one to the other. Um, so someone who, for example, um, I won't use names, but a friend of mine, um, he likes to go the all-out evil route, slay everybody, get really violent, you know, bloodshed and the whole bit. In real life, he's a really nice guy, and I just, I just don't think that there's enough proof, or, you know, there's there's not enough evidence to say that you know, violence from games is causing people to become more violent in the real world, um, and and I think those those small cases that do occur, you've got to look at well, did they have an under, underlying problem already? Right. That was sort of compounded by the game. By by playing this game, did it trigger something? I mean, it's, it's yeah. There's there's way too much to go into. I mean, unless we had another hour and a half to discuss it and <laughs> and, and look into it, it's just such a big topic. But my my opinion is is that I don't think um, games are, are are causing kids to become more violent. It's just, I guess, it's just sort of the times that we live in now with everything that they're exposed to. Um, we're we're more des- uh, desensitized to to what's going on, you know, the whole war thing and and the violence that we see on TV sort of pulls us away from that. Um, I mean, I don't have a child, but you know, I have a small cousin that 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 I think of as a, as a little brother, and you know, I I don't want him to see these sorts of things and and you know end up becoming desensitized to it. I, I think. You know, you need to have common sense, and common sense is what reigns in this sort of in this sort of topic. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you put your child in front of violence for ten, twelve hours a day, they may become violent, but that's not about the game. That's about you know, having some sort of balance in their life and and having other things, you know, besides just constantly playing. You know, yeah. another another angle to look at is games that allow people to, you know, violent games can be an outlet for people. You know, and can be a way for them to take those frustrations out and calm down and not feel like they, you know, have those things building up inside of them as well. Example, postal. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only kind of postal we want happening. That's right. <laughs> Anything else either of you would like to say before we close? We're kind of getting toward the end here. Mm, not really. I don't think so. Except it's raining outside. <laughs> <laughs> Randomly good to know. Oh, You're welcome. I will, I will just say I've had a good time. This has been a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, a treat to talk to you. Oh, thanks. 
A thank you to Jameson and Daniel for being on today. You can read Jameson's blog and hear his thoughts on things as they're created. I will link to that site on Genesee.com, and you could also follow him on Twitter, and I'm going to spell it for you, at S-I-A-W-N-H-Y, Sean He. It's actually Scion High. Scion High, okay. <laughs> and Daniel, you can find sitting in his room alone, madly studying. Or actually, you could find him on Twitter, but he'll have to tell you that because I don't remember. What is your Twitter, Daniel? I actually don't remember either. <laughs> See, back can, to the sitting pro- in your room alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, do th- I do a lot of that. Um, we could probably post it on the website or something. Okay, I'll do that. I'd like to say thank you to my sponsor, Mapbook. If you'd like to support the podcast, please click on their icon at jennyc.com or join the Gray Area Podcast group on MapHook. You can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook, slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationships or just need a new perspective, please email me your questions at jennyc.gray at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode.